You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. First president to be annoyed by the Senate was the first president. Washington gets upset in a meeting with the Senate. An ambassador arrives at the wrong port. An official from a foreign government and a controversial one is invited to speak at Congress. Several people go willy-nilly on their own personal missions of foreign policy. And a group of people meet in Connecticut. And all of it has a lot to do with some of the events going on today. First, though, let's start with George Washington, August 22nd, 1789. He's the president now. And he's operating under a constitution that says treaties with foreign powers are negotiated by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, advice and consent, legal terms coming from British law. The queen, for instance, she enacts and enforces only with the advice and consent of parliament. So it's strong language. He does what he thinks is is reasonable. And we talk so much about how George Washington as the first president set so many precedents that are still being followed today. For instance, just to throw one out there, you know, it wasn't entirely clear that the cabinet, the, the cabinet itself, that word is not mentioned in the Constitution, that the cabinet, the secretaries work for the president. They could work for Congress just as well. Congress is approving their pay. So George Washington sets that president, no, they work for me. I'm going to seek out their advice and I'm going to make the decision. He's setting all kinds of precedents. We don't talk often about the precedents that he tried to set that he got wrong because, well, we don't like to do that. Today we will. He's got an opportunity to deal with a foreign power. And in this case, it is the American Indians, the Creeks in Georgia that the United States government would like to set a treaty with. There's 60 or 70,000 of them living in Georgia. That's almost half the amount of other settlers in Georgia. So they, they have a sizable population there. And they're, in this case, treated at that time as a foreign power. George Washington does something different. He visits the Senate. And at this point, they would have been meeting in a building right next to Independence Hall. If you go to Philadelphia to see Independence Hall, you can see this building where Congress was meeting. In the upper floor, the Senate was meeting. And he sits in the chair of the president of the Senate. Now, normally, John Adams, as the vice president, would sit there and preside over the Senate. Today, he takes the secretary's chair and George Washington takes the presiding chair. That is something that will never happen again, and there could be a reason for it. As John Adams reads out the various provisions of this Creek Treaty, there's a tremendous amount of debate, discussion, noise. 
one of the senators says something to the effect that he couldn't hear anything else but that the treaty had something to do with Indians. But also, some of the senators are a bit intimidated by having Washington right there. Aren't we going to have time to discuss this? So they ask for more time to consider whether they can consent on this treaty. Washington's frustrated, and according to an account, gets up and says, this defeats every purpose of my being here. Now, he does come back two days later, observe some more debate. The Senate approves the treaty. He decided after that that the way it would work is all business would be done between those branches in writing, and that he would negotiate first, or his envoys, and then bring it to the Senate for approval. And so by the time you get to the Jay Treaty, the treaty with Great Britain, 1790s, he negotiates terms with Britain through his envoys, through John Jay. He gives his stamp of approval. He goes to the Senate for approval as well. So there are political reasons, procedural reasons, and really practical reasons why the president negotiates and advice and consent, at least in the American system, comes later. Or if you follow what Washington really does, both in terms of the treaty provisions of the Constitution and in terms of the other part of the Constitution where the words advice and center mentioned in the handling of presidential nominations. Nominations are made by the president and approved with the advice and consent of the Senate. The early parts of those, the advice is for the president to seek out where necessary, and the consent is, of course, mandatory. So it probably behooves a president to get some support from a Senate, particularly for a nominee and certainly for a treaty. But the consent happens later. You have an additional situation. Edmund Guinet, who comes to the United States as envoy to France, really has a secondary motive than just good relations between the two countries and representing his country. He wants to build up support for France within the United States politically, and he's less supportive of the Washington administration than he is of the budding Republican Party in the United States. Notably, Guinard does a couple of things. He arrives in Charleston, This is not the capital of the United States at this time. It is Philadelphia at this time. And on his way to Philadelphia, he has several meetings where he's promoting France and the interest of France, not acting really like a sincere diplomat and more like a partisan politician. There's a big meeting in Philadelphia for him, and he goes to Philadelphia at a time when Washington is not there. So... Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson greets him. This causes a big fiasco. He's attacked in the press. He attacks the Washington administration. The United States asks for his removal. Uh, Eventually, that's going to be granted. But actually, in an ironic twist to the story, Washington ends up protecting uh, Gannett from, from extradition because if he goes back to France, the politics have changed there and he's going to be beheaded. Nobly. Uh, Washington allows him to stay in the country, and he ends up uh, marrying, actually, the daughter of Governor George Clinton. So, you have somebody else right around the same time. You have George Logan, who is a physician, 
in Philadelphia. He's just generally a supporter of the Republican Party. He's a Quaker, and his family also came from a loyalist and for a background. And from for much of the Revolution, Logan uh, wasn't here. There's some tensions in 1798 between the Adams administration in the United States and France, our merchant ships holding them at port. In some cases, they've captured and imprisoned American sailors. During his time, Logan goes over to France. He meets with French officials, including Talleyrand, who is the French foreign minister. So he's not just meeting with a few influential people, he's meeting with the government. He identifies himself clearly as a private citizen. But he does say that anti-French sentiment right now is prevalent in the United States. I cannot explain the American government's position. I'm not going to criticize France's position. But I can suggest ways that you could improve relations with the United States to the benefit of both countries. There are British propagandists in the U.S. who are portraying you as corrupt, anxious for war, and stating that any friend of France is an enemy of the United States. They're whooping up the patriotism in the country. So the French government takes some steps to relieve tensions. They do release American sailors who were in prison, and they lift a trade embargo. But we don't know how much it was Logan's visit that did this, or whether it was the thing that they were planning to do anyway, but it did come around the same time. Now, there's people in the Federalist Party uh, who look at this, most notably the Secretary of State under Adams' administration, Timothy Pickering. He said that Congress should act to curb the temerity and imprudence of individuals affecting to interfere in public affairs between France and the United States. And so, 1799, you pass the Logan Act, which easily passes the House and the Senate. And here's what it says. Any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who, without authority of the United States, directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with any foreign government or any officer or agent thereof, with intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or officer or agent thereof in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States, or to defeat the measures of the United States, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. This section shall not abridge the right of a citizen to apply himself or his agent to any foreign government or the agents thereof for of any injury which he may have sustained from such government or any of its agents or subjects. That is the Logan Act. Interesting twist to this story is that after all of this, Logan is elected as a Republican to the United States Senate, senator from Pennsylvania, serves for six years. He tries to get this Logan Act repealed, unsuccessful. And he doesn't stop. In 1810, as things are bubbling up with England, in the run-up to the War of 1812, he goes on his own private diplomatic mission as an emissary of peace, but is not successful. Well, I'll tell you this. George Logan actually is somebody who Jefferson would have known. He was in the Philadelphia Society in the early Republic and obviously not a person who's talked about that much. But from time to time, when somebody of one party or the other does something, 
that appears to be an ad hoc foreign policy or something contrary to the government of the United States. It's his name comes back. Everyone knows we have an odd situation with the current negotiations going on in Iran where 47 Republican senators wrote an open letter to the government of Iran reminding them that without their consent, any agreement with President Obama was merely that, a verbal understanding between the Ayatollah Khomeini and President Obama. And anything done by the president could be reversed by the next president and that their terms are longer than any president. Uh, Ted Papadopoulos writes on the Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Can you speak to the recent letter written to Iran by one party? So I'd say that a letter like this is highly unusual, probably not productive. I mean, the comparison that I would use I'm thinking of Nixon going to China because I'm really trying to think of a situation where you had a really hated enemy of the United States for a long time, you know, with many grievances between us and that enemy. And I think that it applies, by the way, to the 18th century tail end, the run up to quasi war with France during the Adams administration. A lot of grudges mistrust. But I can imagine in the early 70s when there was this extreme mistrust of communist China, that if Nixon was not so artful, and he was, of of keeping the entire mission, something that's probably not possible today, that you could have GOP conservatives or Southern Democrats at that time getting together, sending a letter to Chairman Mao saying, you know, you're going to see a guy named Richard get off the plane. Just ignore him. We're the ones in control. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I think it would have been seen as not helpful and it would have backfired. Nixon kept that mission secret, so it was never a factor. In 1987, something else happens. Daniel Ortega, the leader of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, visits Congress during the 1980s. And for some time, I mean, that was a communist government that was established in Central America. So for particularly for the Reagan administration, this was a very upsetting development. And they had a policy of first openly and then secretly supporting the Contras who were trying to overthrow the Sandinista government. Speaker of the House Jim Wright in 1987 works out a deal to bring Ortega to the United States to have a visit with lawmakers. This is what the New York Times says. There were times when the White House seemed left out of the peace process, uninformed and irritated. We don't have any idea what's going on, an administration official said Thursday. There was a bizarre atmosphere to the motion and commotion. The leftist, Mr. Ortega, one of President Reagan's arch enemies, heads a government that the administration has been trying to overthrow by helping to finance a war that has killed thousands of Nicaraguans on both sides. Yet he was freely moving around Washington, visiting Mr. Wright in his Capitol Hill office. Ortega doesn't just speak to Congress. He details a ceasefire proposal to Speaker Wright. This outraged the Reagan administration. There was a lot of criticism of this. You have in 2002... Uh, three representatives run up to Iraq war, Jim McDermott, David Bonnier, Mike Thompson, three congressmen, visit Baghdad, try to get their side, say that the regime should be given due process. In 1975, two senators, John Sparkman and George McGovern, were accused of violating the Logan Act when they traveled to Cuba and met with officials there. McGovern says that he made it clear he had no authority to negotiate on behalf of the United States. He just came to listen and learn. 1984, President Reagan stated that the activities of Jesse Jackson, who went to Cuba and Nicaragua and returned with Cuban prisoners, may have violated the Logan Act. Steve King, in 2007, introduced legislation that would prohibit Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from drawing funds to visit to foreign states if they sponsor terrorism. She had visited Syria during that time. He also throws out the Logan Act. There's been numerous instances where the Logan Act has been cited. Uh, It's only been enforced in one case in 1803. And you have a much-discussed case now of Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, who it's claimed, sent envoys to the Soviets to undermine Ronald Reagan during the early part of his presidency. He had a friend, John Tunney, also a senator from California, went to Moscow on behalf of his own business. And according to papers released by the Soviets, it's a memo written by a KGB official uh, that said the Soviets should present a better image 
that not all Americans agree with the Reagan administration and that perhaps Kennedy could use his contact with people in the news business to arrange interviews with the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, Yuri Andropov, that would be aired in the United States. And he offered to arm Soviet officials with explanations regarding problems of nuclear disarmament so they may be better prepared and more convincing during appearances in the USA. Like other rational people, the KGB memo said, Kennedy is very troubled by the current state of Soviet-American relations. It's coming from a KGB source, and it's secondhand, and it's also very vague about what exactly was was promised in that letter. But it was an example of a little bit of uh, probably some ad hoc foreign policy went on there. Ted Kennedy hadn't—it's not the first time uh, Ted Kennedy had also been involved with similar things during the Carter administration, and he'd been working with the Soviet Union in the past to negotiate the release of Armenians. You have some problems with the enforcement of the Logan Act, I think. First of all, you're saying in that Logan Act that the person is acting without the authority of the United States. And I think even if their timing may not be right, uh, senators of the United States who have an advice and consent role, it's one thing to say this is a bad thing to do, writing an open letter like this, which I I would. Uh, I think some of them have already come to that conclusion. You have a statement from McCain saying it was probably not the best way to do it. But to equate it to too far when you're not talking about a private citizen doing something, but a group of senators who actually have a role in the process. I think there are First Amendment issues with Logan Act that have never actually been resolved because it hasn't been used. And, you know, I believe that this was an open letter written probably as much for American consumption as for the actual Iranian government. I believe the reaction the Iranian government is is that it was it didn't have much effect on on their thinking. So I mean you see a petition going out to, to prosecute these senators as treason. I mean to think that the Justice Department's actually going to lock them up. I mean it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, don't have a majority of the Senate that signed this letter, so it's forty seven, so I the interesting thing that I, I believe about this is that in writing the letter, the 47 have done two things they may not have intended to do, and we're not hearing a lot of talk about it in any case. One is you're, you are representing that a majority of the Senate would prefer the normal way of things going, that the president negotiates, and then the Senate offers its advice and consent over what's been negotiated. And then you have also that these 47 in writing a letter to the government of Iran have in effect acknowledged that there's someone that we could be talking to, which is a little different from policy in the past. You do have one case on this uh, that went to the Supreme Court, and this is that during the Chaco War between Bolivia and Paraguay in the 30s, President Roosevelt said America would be neutral. Curtis Wright Export Corps continued to sell bombers and fighter planes to Bolivia. So they're indicted. They defend themselves saying the embargo and the proclamation were void because President Roosevelt issued it and Congress had improperly delegated legislative power to the executive branch. It should be a legislative determination, not for the president's unfettered discretion. Here's what Justice Sutherland says in 1936, in his opinion of the court. 
It is important to bear in mind that we are here dealing not alone with an authority vested in the president by an exertion of legislative power, but with such an authority, plus the very delicate plenary and exclusive power of the president as a sole organ of the federal government in the field of international relations, a power which does not require as its basis, as a basis for its exercise an act of Congress, but which, of course, like every other governmental power, must be exercised in subordination to the applicable provisions of the Constitution. There's a couple other cases to bring up. Uh, one, you have the Hartford Convention during the War of 1812, which isn't really what it sometimes quickly described in the in the textbooks as, as a meaning of people to decide a secession of New England. That really wasn't on the agenda. There were a few people at that convention that were secessionists. But they made two things clear. Uh, they made two things very clear. They were not going to negotiate with the British, and they were merely going to propose things that the Congress should do. Nonetheless, there's newspaper articles showing a bunch of these delegates jumping off a cliff into the waiting arms of King George. But there was never any serious talk, despite all of the opposition to the War of 1812, that any American should negotiate with the British. During the 1968 presidential election, we've talked about this, how there was the Anna Chenault affair where there were phone calls between the South Vietnamese government and the Nixon campaign, perhaps Nixon himself directing them, that they could get a better deal if they held out on the treaty that Lyndon Johnson was proposing. These, at all of these times... The Logan Act was at least referenced, but hasn't been used. I think generally the best way is that the president does the negotiating optimally. There's more consultation with the legislative body if the president wants something to pass. And, I mean, it should be obvious uh, that uh, the advice and consent should work in an obvious way. Therefore, you want to consent, you better give them some advice on what's going on. We have a very polarized atmosphere, though, right now, and there's perhaps a desire on the part of administration to keep things calm until there's an actual deal on the table, and then it could be approved or rejected in its full terms. That's probably the optimal way to go. As to the merits of a deal with uh, Iran at this point, uh, I'm going to uh, knock it into it in this cast, but I think because this topic is, is so big, uh, I'm going to, you're going to see me replay two recent casts, which kind of give the bad side of what's happened since the Iranian revolution in, in two ways, both the hostage taking and then the hostage rescue attempt. And then I, I believe I will do another cast looking at some of the issues and comparing it in historical context to things like the China and Cuban situation. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I have a link on that site where you can see a few of the older episodes, but also you can donate. Uh, I would appreciate any donations that you can make. And if you like the program, please tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. 
Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.